1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Sarah Ift-Decker, Assistant Professor of History at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, to talk about her new book, The Fruit of Her Hands, Jewish and Christian Women's Work in Medieval Catalan Cities, of this year, 2022, with Penn State University Press. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to the program.
0: Hello. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, I'm so pleased that you're joining us. So how are you today? How's Tennessee this morning?
0: Good, good. Unseasonably cold. I finally had to uh, turn the heat on, which uh, I hate having to do this early in the year. But is what it is.
1: indeed. Um. Yeah. I, I wonder what in, um, I wonder how that compares unseasonably cold in Tennessee to
0: what, when I. Yeah, I mean, from,
1: but,
0: yeah. unseasonably cold means like fifty-five today.
1: Ah, yeah. So seasonable for many places, but not Tennessee. Yes.
0: Cool. Yes
1: all right um hey so th- we're this is the new books network and we're going to get to your book but before we start i would like to hear about your podcast
0: yeah, So I have a podcast called Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, which I started uh, about four years ago now. And essentially what I do on the podcast is I look at various media representations of the medieval past. I mostly do movies, but occasionally I'll do television shows, I'll do books, and I've also done Medieval Times Restaurant.
1: <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, which
0: is such an experience, uh, especially <laughs> since it now is themed uh, as Spain, which is, uh, of course, my own area. Mm, so even better. that was great fun. But <laughs> yes, essentially, I uh, just yeah kind of talked through what these get right, what they more often get wrong, and what they tell us about mm-hmm. how modern people think about the medieval past.
1: Right. Which is a very useful and at this point abused uh, period like, period in time, right?
0: Yes. Yes, and that's a big, and that's a big part of a lot of what I talk about, especially because I think a lot of the media that we have—not uh, that it actively attempts necessarily to instill some of these problematic views of the medieval past—but I think it often accepts a lot of the kind of tenets of that as normal and natural. For sure,
1: yeah. Um, it's an interesting—it's interesting to consider like the medieval that our students bring to us as opposed to the yes we might experience or understand you know, experience in our archival adventures or yes so, yeah all right um so tell me how you came to write the fruit of her hands
0: uh so the project in some ways actually goes back to my own days as an undergrad in that that's actually what first got me into the archives so when i became or when i kind of thought when i was in high school that i wanted to be a medievalist i sort of thought about you know Queens in England and France and places like that, as as many of us I think do. Sure, of course, yes. And uh, then my undergraduate advisor uh, encouraged me and another uh, diehard medievalist who was there at the time, um, who uh, actually also has a exciting book out this year on Valencia. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, right can plug her as yeah. well mm-hmm. um abby agresta and uh, her book is the keys to bread and wine okay. so the you know so he got us to basically kind of go to the archives and do some work on uh essentially with uh, the documents that i still am working with now for this project have worked with for this project that are called notarial registers so that basically we're looking at a context in which notaries aren't just in the way that they are in the United States today, at least, uh, that they're, you know, they basically kind of stamp things uh, in terms of what your experience would be like. But in uh, the medieval Mediterranean, notaries are really legal professionals as well as public authorities. Mm -hmm. So they both have the legal expertise to draw up valid contracts and are the people whose authority makes them into things that can be enforced. And mm-hmm. so, more and more people in the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries start going to the notaries for all sorts of different things, so loans, real estate sales, uh, you know rentals uh, as well as things like marriage contracts, wills, so a really wide array of documents.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and just got fascinated with these particular documents and and uh, using them to talk about these kind of questions of gender.
1: Okay, you were at Swarthmore right. So is that stuff? Yes. Fun? I yes yes yeah. <laughs> I, met, I met steph many years ago in barcelona um uh, i'm glad to know he's still like the in, in, bring people to medieval catalonia it's
0: wonderful yes he he just retired recently but there's a uh, there's like three of us who were his students at all close to the same time who uh you know all all actually have jobs which is uh easier said than done in yeah, medieval studies is, these days
1: that is an achievement for a medievalist i also love the idea of like when i was in high school and i wanted to be a medievalist i was thinking about which is just such a you know how many times is that a sentence that anyone says mm-hmm. anyway right. I was, <laughs> you know, but i i recognize it immediately and i was like right i'm gonna write about eleanor of aquitaine like everyone uh-huh, else yep but in fact you know the sources um The sources are there in Catalonia and around the Mediterranean for this period. There we go. I mean, which I think is probably part of the question of why Catalonia as well. I mean, partially your undergraduate advisor, but it's the archival base that kept you there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. That going there, you know, spending that first summer in Girona, uh, it really you kind of realize, you know, they... They have better weather, they have better food, and they have better documents. That uh, for this project, I actually kind of crunched the numbers at some point, uh, kind of explaining something to my students that, that I looked at in total 20,000 separate contracts that formed the source base for this, which is a lot, right? And people don't necessarily think about there being that much from the Middle Ages, but in some in places like Catalonia, there is.
1: There are tons. So let's talk about these documents, actually, these notarial documents, I mean, because they are this hybrid situation. They're not just going to be a stamp. It's not just a contract. Right. But there's a lot of there's a lot of heavy lifting that you're doing as the historian to to pull out um, kind of the context and make these a meaningful document. Right. So what tell our listeners what they look like, what they include, how long they are, what's average, anything you want to give it.
0: Yeah. So first of all, just to kind of give the reader a sense of the experience of these. So they are written in Latin. They are also written in a script that I could perhaps most generously describe as quirky and challenging. Mm. Um, but it is essentially, you know, if you look at, say, a medieval book, right, one of the kind of, you know, the kind of pretty books, the illuminated manuscripts, those have these really beautiful hands. That's not what the notaries are doing in general, and it's especially not what the notaries are doing in these registers, which are the books that they keep for their own records. So we have some comb- you know, we have some nicer notaries, but often we have essentially a kind of illegible scrawl that is heavily abbreviated. So challenges uh, in terms of actually just reading the documents. Uh, And then, of course, the challenges of making them mean things. And uh, one of the things to keep in mind is that the length can actually vary really dramatically. So a number of the contracts that I work with are things like loan contracts uh, or sales on credit as well. And those are quite brief contracts that those are often really just a few lines. But then if you get into something like a marriage contract or a real estate contract or a will, uh, those might be two pages or even uh, 10 pages, if you're, say, talking about maybe the will of a very wealthy person who has a lot of things that they're divvying up uh, or an inventory of a household. So that, as I said, they can vary a great deal.
1: How formulaic are they? Like, wills tend to be quite formulaic. And then they've started this and it's on a of body. Here's what's going on. I'm giving this money to the same houses. Like, how, how formulaic are your notarial documents in general?
0: I would say fairly formulaic. There's definitely a lot of legalese, but you also, Mm -hmm. as you're kind of reading them, you can also see some of these moments here and there where there maybe are cases, for example, where you can see that maybe there's kind of some sort of terms or something like that, that a person is introducing that maybe is a little different from something the notary has done before, Uh, or especially when you're talking about notaries as dealing with members of Jewish communities, which is something that I'll actually be talking about more even in my next project, that you often see that they, they kind of struggle at times to kind of figure out how to express things which might be standard and formulaic under Jewish law, but which is not necessarily something very familiar. To these Christian notaries,
1: so then these kinds of things are something you're going to notice, right? When you're you you yes, two hundred documents over the course of the day, and one really stands out as being special.
0: Yeah, exactly. That, you know, you really have, I mean, you, you go through these, uh, these documents, and, you know, I would be looking at hundreds of individual documents over the course of the day. And uh, going through them, you know, you, you go through things, and there's, you know, things that you're like, all right, this is useful, I'll kind of make a note of this, I'll make a note of this, Uh, this one, I'm just going to skip entirely, because, you know, it's about men, and I don't care. And, um, and, yeah, just, yeah, another man, another <laughs> farm, whatever. And, uh, you know, but then every now and then you'll get something that, you know, really is like, wow. Um, you know, and for, so for example, you know, the, the first time I saw that there's a, you know, was a contract involving a Jewish divorce uh, was this really kind of, kind of wow moment. Um, and then there's also things like there's a, there's a woman that I talk about a lot over the course of the book, uh, Bonadona widow of Astru Vida of Girona. And she really jumped out to me because, first of all, there honestly aren't that many Jewish women that you actually see making multiple loans, which is something that I talk about. But that this particular woman, she says that she starts out collecting on loans that her late husband had made. And she says that my husband made me a grant of all of all the debts owed to him and all his goods with a Hebrew contract which really jumps out to me, especially because, uh, first of all, this kind of reference right in the notarial uh, documentation to this Hebrew contract that the notary assuredly could not read, right? She's the one bringing it up and saying, I've got this, and this is what it says, and he's believing her. And then in addition, that it's also interesting because this is clearly a contract that is finding a way around the fact that Technically, according to Jewish law, men really are not supposed to name their wives as their heirs. And that in this particular case, he's actually, if you kind of keep looking at more and more of these documents, you realize he's effectively actually kind of disinheriting two daughters. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Or at least delaying their inheritance until after their mother's death.
1: So very interesting. And this is gonna like stand out, and you'll read it much more carefully. I just, um, I, you know, there's a lot of work that I recognize as a fellow archival historian that I want to make sure our listeners really get like and really think about when we're talking about um, this kind of work, how much some there are these moments, you know, it's like being in a hospital where you have these moments of real excitement. And then most of it is just mind dumbing, boring. You're just like, I yeah, focus.
0: yeah. So, I have an Excel spreadsheet, which is where I just what I tend to use to record the basics of my notes. And a lot of contracts is essentially that I'll kind of go through. I'll have a kind of different columns for the very basics of participants in the transaction. I had a kind of little code that I invented to be able to sort things easily to be able to say, you know, what's the gender of the people in this contract? Are there Jews in this contract? What's the number of people involved in this contract? Uh, I have, you know, a column for sum of money involved, you know, so different kind of columns of things like that. You go through and you just kind of enter things and it's very much by by rote. And there certainly are days, that, you know, especially when I'm talking about, uh, I spent the, the kind of bulk of this research, because this is the book based on my dissertation, the bulk of this research was done uh, during basically an entire year that I spent uh, dividing my time between the three main cities I looked at, Barcelona, Girona, and Vic, and just went to the archive every day. Um, every day is often about four hours, because archives in this particular region usually don't have very extensive hours but, uh, spending about, you know, four by four hours in the archive where I would just sit and I would just record all of these things. And, you know, maybe I'd, as I said, kind of get, you know, a hundred, a couple of hundred, you know, things in per day potentially, but you know, that it would be just very much like, here's a line, here's a line, here's a line and is often, yeah, very monotonous.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and not the, not the most comfortable and not the temperatures falling. And yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, no, we're open, actually, but you can only see one piece of archival material today.
0: Cool. Right, yes. There's a, a number of archives I've worked in that are not air-conditioned, which in uh, summers in the Mediterranean is not especially pleasant. Uh, the archive in Barcelona that I worked in is the Cathedral Archive, which uh, on the one hand is beautiful and fascinating because it's located physically on top of the cathedral. And so, you know, go up this rickety elevator and then you're kind of standing on top of the cloisters. and it's Really stunning, but then during the winter they had a nativity scene, and for the nativity scene they brought in live roost a live rooster, <laughs> and that's why I know, not having grown up on a farm, that roosters don't just crow at dawn; they crow whenever they feel like. Many times over the course of a morning, yes, they do. Uh, yeah,
1: and they may not stop then. Yeah, I've had revenge fantasies about roosters lately. It's, its own that's its own situation. OK, anyway, that's a weird thing to say. OK, um, so tell me about the title of this book, The Fruit of Her Hands. Where does that come from?
0: Yes. Yeah, so that actually comes from a line in, uh, in Proverbs that uh, if you if you look at uh, so Proverbs has this discussion of uh, uh, basically what makes a good wife yeah, uh, we, uh, we sometimes kind of use the translation of the woman of valor to uh, kind of refer to this, right? And one of the interesting things when you look at the biblical text directly is that the way it talks about this woman and uh, explains why she's so great and why this is the kind of woman you should have as a wife, it's not just, you know, that she's pious and she obeys her husband. It's a lot about how uh, she works, and that she benefits her household and her community through her work. And that was something that I I actually kind of was rereading that text because of a course that I was teaching at the time on women in the Bible. And, uh, you know, really, it kind of jumped out to me as uh, this is exactly, you know, what I'm seeing in, you know, these women. And it's, uh, I would say, sometimes you see kind of signs that the men around them appreciate and value that, and sometimes you don't. But you do see these women doing this through the, these contracts. Uh, so I was just really struck by that, especially given that I'm talking about both Jewish and Christian communities in Catalonia. And, of course, uh, this is a text that is shared by both of those communities.
1: hmm Proverbs being quite quite a popular text as well, so this is this is something our they, the people you're under discussion would have been familiar with.
0: Exactly, yes, they all know these. Yeah, exactly. They all they all know this text. Yeah, and it's it's interesting in terms of the kinds of different contexts that it comes up. Uh, I read in particular a number of Jewish interpretations. The rabbis in this particular region, I would say, were not as enthusiastic about that aspect of things, but. If you then kind of go north a bit and you look at the documentation from Northern Europe, there's actually this really fascinating uh, document that's an elegy that a man wrote for his wife who had been murdered where he actually bases the elegy on these uh, this this section in Proverbs and really highlights that this is what his wife was like, at least in how he's remembering her, that she did all of this work that benefited his household and his community, and what am I going to do without her?
1: Oh, well, wow. That's beautiful. That's nice. Yeah. 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 Okay, so just to clarify, kind of quick and dirty, what are the questions you're approaching? Like, what do you attempt to answer here in this study?
0: Yeah, so uh, I will say, first of all, that this is something that I came to essentially uh, kind of as a comparative project and wanting to know essentially what basically kind of having this comparison, right, between Jewish and Christian women's work. And initially, because of a lot of the scholarship that's out there, I anticipated that it would look relatively similar. And then when I spent some time in the archives, I realized that was not the case. And in fact, that it looked really different and in particular that Jewish women are much less active than Christian women. Uh, So that was the big question I would say overall that I'm trying to answer in the book. The overarching question is, why is that the case? Then as I continued to spend time in the archives, I also found these kind of interesting moments that complicated that. So that usually that's what things look like. And then you have these really interesting outliers. So that one very dramatic one is that uh, if you're looking at Barcelona in particular, right after the Black Death, the uh, essentially percentage of Jewish loans extended by women jumps from 2% to 20%. (laughs) And so that's something, and, and also just to kind of give a sense, right, of the nature of this work, that's really something that kind of comes out of if you looked at one loan contract, right, you wouldn't get this. If you look at dozens or hundreds of loan contracts, you get this. And it feels really striking when you sit down and crunch your numbers and make your tables. Uh, And then also found that I have this, you know, that this one town of Veek that is, you know, a town that I was encouraged to check out because uh, they have such rich archival holdings by my PhD advisor, Paul Friedman, who uh, has worked in Veek before and, uh, you know, really was then kind of struck by, you know, in fact, yes, that was a great place to work in an exciting place to work because here also we have this moment where in the early days of the community, when there's very few Jews at all, there about 40% of Jewish loans are being extended by women. And it kind of gradually goes down, but remains high, remains kind of floating around 10% all the way until about 1330. Uh, so, So going from about 1250 to 1330, we have this interesting moment in which this one town looks really, really different. From what I find in the other towns, as well as what pe- what other scholars have tended to find, so I was just really so the, you know other kind of you know questions that come up during the research, right? Why why is Veik like this?
1: Yeah, um, that is that is an interesting statistical kind of anomaly. Um, yeah. Well, why why is Veik like this?
0: Uh, so my my interpretation of why Veek is like this is, uh, in part, that is, uh, it's something that's coming out, essentially, of the challenges of founding a new community, that in the kind of earlier days of this community, that you, you as I said, you really don't have uh, that many people as part of it. But also one of the things that I think is going on is... I think it really actually points to the the kind of idiosyncratic nature, perhaps, of kind of things that we're seeing historically, because when we actually, you know, you sit down and you look in detail then at what this means, one of the reasons that women are so prominent in the early days is actually numerically comes from A lot of it at least comes from the work of one particular woman, uh, this woman, Goj, the wife of David Canviador. And she is also unusual in that most of the women that we see, the Jewish women that we see making loans tend to be widows. And she's married and her husband is doing whatever he's doing, and that is not money lending. And we know that that's the case, right? We know that uh, men, we know that in general, Jews are doing a lot of other things that they're just often not as well represented in the documentation that we have. And so what seems to, I think, have been going on is that we have this kind of founding family that basically is making this decision. All right, we're both working. I'm doing this, and you're going to be doing it this money lending work. And uh, that this then is something that I think really kind of pervades the communal memory for a long time. And you know, and when you kind of go into the next generation, you can see her daughters-in-law are really active. Her niece is really active. Um, her daughters interestingly are not, um, but that, you know, you can see, right, that it's made that to some extent, uh, when you have such a small community, the individual choices made within a family can really have a dramatic impact.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that really makes sense. That, that, mm-hmm. that suits, that fits. Um, what an interesting case, right. To be able to look at that and then a community well-established like Barcelona and you can make some, or Toronto and make some very different, come to very different conclusions.
0: Yes. And in Barcelona, right, women's women's uh, Jewish women's lending in particular, Christian women are much more active in a lot of these spheres, but that Jewish women in particular are, you know, it's always just like, oh, I finally found a Jewish woman. It's like very exciting whenever they actually show up at all in the documentation. Um, this is And so, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, in this general question is interesting to me. I don't know just kind of if you just asked me to guess about what who I thought would be more active in this community, I would definitely have said Jewish women. Um, and I'm I was really surprised to read that. No, that like you argue that Christian women are able to manage their family resources to a much greater degree than Jewish women. What, what's going
0: on? Why is this? Yeah, I think there's a couple of big pieces of that is that I think one of the big pieces has to do with legal culture. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion, right, about kind of thinking about sort of Mediterranean versus Northern Europe and kind of whose legal system is, you know, better for women. And uh, In a lot of ways, it is a legal system that really allows a lot of leeway to women, especially in terms of exerting control over family property. And that certainly doesn't mean that it's a paradise for women. It certainly, you know, they are certainly disadvantaged in ways that men are not. But that is that, you know, we can kind of look at these women and say, you know, okay, they're really able to do a lot. And that has to do with a legal system that really kind of emphasizes the fact that. So because basically when they when they get married, a woman gives her husband a dowry. And especially in context of things like dowry inflation, right, this could, if you're looking, this could be a pretty significant proportion of the family assets. And so because of that, there's a lot of recognition of and respect for her claims on household property so that even though we know, okay, he's going to manage the dowry or he's supposed to be managing the dowry while this you know couple is together, there is some acknowledgement of the fact that we know that there's a good chance because there is sometimes an age disparity that men are often somewhat older than their wives we know there's a good chance that she's might end up widowed and that this is what she's going to be relying on to support herself financially. And in the acknowledgement of that, there's a sense, okay, well, we need to make sure that this is protected and, uh, That in itself, right, is some to some extent paternalistic, right? It's a kind of, you know, we have to protect the poor women who can't protect themselves. But then it kind of gives women a lot of leeway in terms of saying, okay, so that means that we're going to kind of have structures, which mean that women more often are consenting to transactions made by their husbands. And even that women can actually sue their husbands in court for the return of their dowries. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, the work of other scholars, yeah, demonstrates that they do very successfully. And, uh, you know, in cases where their husband is mismanaging the property in which he's actually, you know, incurred so many debts that he's actually potentially insolvent. Uh, So that there is this sense that, that, you know, we're going to really respect to some extent uh, women's property rights to make sure that they can in the, you know, in a situation where they don't have a man around, that they can take care of themselves. And so you really see a lot kind of coming out of that. And In contrast to the interpretations that we see locally of Jewish law tend to be, I would say, uh, much less kind of generous toward women's property rights. Uh, I actually even have, so I looked as well for this project. I looked as well at, uh, literature. So which are questions sent to rabbis and their responses. And, uh, there's this one particular guy, Solomon Ibn Adrat, who was the leading rabbi of Barcelona in the late 13th and early 14th centuries. And Ibn Adrat is, um, sometimes very frustrating, but very helpful because he just was incredibly prolific. And also a lot of his work has been preserved. So we have several thousand different responsa written by Ibn Adrat. And uh, so, you know, he has this particular case where actually it seems that there's a Jewish woman and she goes to a Christian court to actually say, I want my dowry back because my husband has all of these debts and the Christian court says, sure, whatever, fine, because that's something they do all the time. The problem is that this guy also has borrowed money from a Jewish creditor, and the Jewish creditor goes and complains to the rabbis about this. And Ibn Adret says, yeah, no, you definitely can't do that. Right. So making sure to kind of emphasize, like, no, that's not something that's allowed. Um, and also, similarly, you know, if you're looking at widows, that In this particular context, there is a sense that, you know, if you decide that you're not going to collect your dowry and you're not going to remarry as a Christian widow, you actually can basically control the whole estate, definitely for at least a year and often in practice for a lot longer. Then in contrast, Jewish widows, they're entitled basically to maintenance, right? So if you don't, if you same thing, don't collect your dowry, you get to be supported out of the estate. And in Northern Europe, that seems to have often been interpreted as okay, that means you can control the estate. But when we look at the responsa uh, from uh, uh, this area, it looks more like a sin. What we mostly have in mind is that if the husband has heirs, the assumption is that, yeah, they're going to get the estate in most cases, and they just have to provide for widowed mother or stepmother or whatever the relationship is.
1: Right. Okay. Um, so, I mean, we're seeing these like very different communities um and in some ways we get women i see that double the jewish women are i think you term it doubly marginalized here as a result of like being women and and being jewish yes
0: and um i mean look look Could you you have comments there first of all yeah Yeah. uh, So one of the other things that is going on is the fact that we also are talking about Jews as belonging to a minority community and even more than that, a legally subordinated community. And that's something that I think is really coming out, in fact, in the particular records that I'm looking at in this notarial documentation, that it is very much a system in a lot of ways that is set up for basically propertied Christian men the notaries themselves are propertyed christian men a lot of the kind of legal structures surrounding notarial culture are kind of created by and for propertyed christian men so anybody who doesn't fall into that category is going to to some extent have a different kind of relationship with notarial culture and uh, so then you know even christian women right don't have the same level I would say in most cases of familiarity and kind of constant contact with notaries and notarial culture as men do but Christian women at least kind of have these kind of interesting experiences where most Christian young women at least of relatively well off families when they're you know potentially in their kind of say late teens based on you know average ages at marriage they're going to the notaries to draw up a marriage contract mm-hmm. Where their aunts and, are or their family, you know. Right, are. yes, yeah. And so that we, you know, have this sense, right, that they kind of develop this familiarity early in life with, okay, what it's like to be a party to a notarial contract, and... Uh, Jewish women are much less likely to do that. There's there's not zero examples of this, as I will be talking about in my next book project. But they're um, but they're much they're much less common, and uh, that you know, and also in most cases, most of the Jewish women we see are widows, right? So that means that the vast majority of Jewish women. Are not even having at least a kind of experience where they're at least an official, formal party to a notarial contract until potentially relatively late in life, right? Even if you're talking about relatively young widows, certainly kind of into adulthood at least.
1: Mm-hmm. And then, without, and, yeah, without a family, uh, like without a lot of female family support that has also been involved in this, right? This network.
0: Right. Exactly. Uh, and so that's a kind of another big piece of this, I think, in terms of what we're seeing is that, you know, their experience is going to be really different, that they are that they are marginalized by the system, both as women and as Jews. And so that's going to affect essentially to what extent either they feel comfortable doing this, as well as to what extent their families and perhaps in particular you know, male family members feel comfortable with them doing this. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so I'm thinking about so like the, the myth, the kind of the myth of the golden age of Judaism and in Spain. I don't know if that's a myth, but the, certainly the myth of convivencia and kind of, you know, that it's been kind of, we spent 30 years destroying to some degree, or at least problematizing to some degree or another. But I still feel like it's kind of out there, this idea that like, if you want to talk about where it was good to be a Jew in the Middle Ages, you're going to talk about Spain. Yeah. What is, what does your work here do to, for this story? How does that complicate that idea?
0: Yeah. So I think one of the things that I'm really interested in is the ways in which it's always more complicated, right? It's never convivencia or persecution, right? That's never, that's never how it works. Uh, And in fact, you know, both, both in the Iberian Peninsula and in Northern Europe, the everyday is, is not persecution, right? The everyday is that, you know, you go to the market and you see your Christian neighbors and things are probably more or less fine, right? And that is the case, of course, in the Iberian Peninsula, you know, as well, in terms of, yeah, that's the everyday. But at the same time, the experience of being a kind of member of the subordinated community, there's more at work than just, is anybody murdering me today? Uh, Which is how it's often presented, right? Those are these kind of dramatic, big moments. Uh, (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Is anybody murdering me? Is anybody like grabbing me and forcibly converting me to Christianity? And most days not. Right. Uh, but that there's a lot of other things going on.
1: I'm just, it really does only take the one day, though. So, you know, that's a big day.
0: Exactly. Yes. Again, that's That's a big day. But, you know, if you kind of look at, you know, the kind of grand sweeping history, most people will go their entire lives without having that day. Right. I mean, most of the people that I'm looking at, uh, you know, die eventually of natural causes. Uh, You know, some of them might die in the Black Death. And uh, there are and there are massacres, you know, in that in the wake of the Black Death. And I think some of my my widows in Barcelona, uh, that that's what happens to to them. But uh, but, you know, that that most of these people, right, live their lives, die a natural death, don't experience these kinds of dramatic moments of persecution, But that on an everyday level, what is it actually like to go to the office of a notary and you see all of these Christians and they just have their names written down and they have their names and they're identified then, you know, by their name, by their father's name, by what they do for a living, maybe by what street they live on. And then you show up and you're kind of bringing in your contract and the only identifier that's given to you beyond your name and maybe your father's name is that you're so-and-so the Jew. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's central to how you're being perceived and how you're being talked about. And, uh, you know, maybe you also are kind of bringing something up that might be related to some kind of arrangement that you have that has to do with uh, Jewish law in particular, right? That maybe you're kind of talking about something that is uh, related to a marriage contract, for example, and... uh, they don't really kind of totally understand there are sort of ways in which one might explain it where it's like, okay, ways, Oh, this seems relatively similar to what we do. And so I'm going to kind of try and kind of translate that back. And so this sort of makes sense, but they might kind of get it wrong. That um, I have a case that's up, you know, a marriage that's, um, I think it's actually one of my divorce contracts where, uh, first of all, they actually first they're trying to they like describe her as a widow and they're like, no, she's not a widow. Her husband's right there, but they're not married anymore because uh, in this period, right, we're talking about Christians don't really do divorce. And so they, you know, write basically that she's a widow and then they have to cross it out and say formerly the wife of so and so. And then they kind of get confused about the fact that, uh, the word ketubah in Hebrew can refer to both the actual marriage contract and also the monetary sum that a husband gives his wife on the occasion of marriage. And they kind of do, they kind of do the wrong translation essentially for that. Uh, so that there's, you know, so that there's like all of these kinds of weird moments. So there's also something I came across recently in relation to a, uh, a new project where, you have this, uh, this this poor guy, he goes to a notary and he's making his will. And in this will, uh, the notary is kind of writing things down. And he says that this man is going to be donating some of his wealth to uh, the poor of Jesus Christ, which is a standard phrase in notarial wills made by Christians. And I don't even think it was necessarily intentional, right? I think he probably just, whenever he writes paparazzi, he's used to writing Jesu Christi and, you know, just kind of like, Otto Otto wrote this. But then you have then, you know, like, how does this actually get enforced legally? Uh, What if this poor guy would have actually preferred, say, for his, uh, you know, wealth to be given to the poor of the Jewish community specifically, which some Jews actually specify? You know, how does that then, you know, how does that then kind of change things? And uh, that, you know, you have these little moments of, uh, you know, being reminded constantly of difference and of being treated differently, and maybe also of not even necessarily having what you actually want fully properly expressed in these documentations because it's different from what Christians would do or what Christians would want. Yeah, or just
1: and like rendered illegible, um, completely inadvertently rendered illegible. Yeah, that does really nuance. Like that That adds this really interesting level of quotidian nuance behavior like life under you know the lived experience of people in this period. It's a very, it's very interesting. Um, so I've taken up a bunch of your time. So I've just got a couple um, a couple more things I want to know. So Like, so what is it they're doing? What are Jewish women and Christian women doing in their communities? And how does this differ? You know, real quick. Sorry, your whole book.
0: Yes, yes, the whole book. Uh, So one of the things I do see a lot of is credit. And one of the reasons for that is, I mean, part that obviously if they're, you know, if the documents are there, they're doing this. But also it is something that does tend to be overrepresented because credit is the kind of thing basically that you really want a notarial contract for. If you're Jewish, you're actually technically legally required to have a notarial contract if you're lending money to a Christian. And even if you're not legally required, you know, you're lending somebody money, you would really like for that person to eventually pay back the money. And uh, so this is a good thing to make sure you have a contract for versus uh, there are, I will say, just probably lots of kinds of work that I don't see because say, if you sell somebody a hat and get cash for it, you don't really need a notarial contract. Uh, I do, however, get some sense of Jewish and Christian women working in various kinds of craft industries through uh, contracts, basically, where they're often buying raw materials on credit uh, so that I can see that Jewish women in particular are working in the silk industry. Christian women, I also have a lot of apprenticeship contracts, so I can see that they're doing a lot of things in textiles, you know, seamstresses, weavers. Uh, and then also uh, leather working. I see some uh, some women both uh, kind of taking apprentices and, you know, women apprenticing for those positions. Uh, bakers as well, actually, there seem to have been a number of women who kind of worked professionally as bakers. I have a woman who's kind of contracting to basically sell a lot of bread to, uh, I think, to the, to the household of the bishop, actually. Oh, cool. All right. So, I mean, so lots of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and the, the one other thing I will add is uh, a lot of real estate that uh, real estate is something that, you know, you don't necessarily think, you know, and uh, there's been a lot of discussion about this among scholars, right? The question of do women get to own property and control property? And the answer is very clearly yes.
1: Yeah, very clearly yes, right? Where does this come from, this idea? Women are inheriting property, they're writing in their wills about how the property they've inherited, they're going to give away. But somehow...
0: I find it fascinating. And uh, one of the things I will say in terms of just sort of a a kind of interesting takeaway for me for this book is that there are a lot of things that women are doing in Catalonia in 1350 that they couldn't do in many places in the United States in 1950, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of taking out credit in your own name, in terms of being able to buy and sell property in your own name, uh, that these are things that women could not necessarily take for granted in some places in the 20th century. And that we're seeing that it's something that, you know, are women as likely to own property as men? No. But are they clearly legally able to do so? Yes.
1: And of course they are. And of course, when they're widowed, and of course they are. But I mean, I think that's part of the answer is that when, when you've got men writing these histories in 1950, this is their status quo and what they expect to be. case. So I think that's a lot of it. Um, all right. I enjoyed this book an immense amount. And I think it's uh, I think it's very important as well. I think it gives it's, a, it's an enjoyable book. It's a good read. Um, I think our listeners will like it a lot. And I think it's going to be very important kind of moving forward to understanding. This is the kind of work that I think is often, I mean, this is a lot of work. It represents <laughs> a lot of work. The kind of stuff like really best suited for a dissertation when you can make yourself go in for four hours every day for a year at a time. Um and so you've really done the profession a service by <laughs> slogging through yeah. these material records. <laughs> I want to recognize that I thanks very much. Um I'm hoping that there's less slog and more fun for the next book. So tell me what that is. What's next?
0: Yeah. So, uh, so I've actually got a couple of projects that I'm working on now. So one, uh, one is also slogging through notarial registers, but it will be really kind of emphasizing the documents that are the fun ones. Uh, so a lot of kind of skimming, not necessarily having to kind of record the, all right, so this is, you know, so-and-so lent, you know, 25 sue, et cetera. Uh, So looking in particular at basically how Jews are using the notaries to draw up these contracts related to inheritance, marriage and divorce, because these are things that technically really should be done within the Jewish community with Hebrew or Aramaic contracts. So I'm trying to figure out why Jews are going to the notaries for these things. Uh, what is kind of, So what is kind of behind those choices, what it tells us about Jewish identity, as well as what it then tells us about Jews' relationship with, uh, with Christians. And so I'm uh, very interested. Also, I'm going to be expanding on this kind of question of uh, translation and mistranslation as microaggression uh, is uh, kind of how I'm thinking about it at the moment. Uh, so that and then I actually also have a project which is looking at links between gender and anti-Judaism, which is going to be fun and involve very pretty manuscripts, I hope.
1: Ooh, yeah. You deserve that. You've earned that. All right. That's really great. Those both sound, those sound like wonderful projects. And uh, I, I wish you luck and associate and full and all of the things that this, I hope, bring you. Um, Sarah, thank you so much for
0: taking time out with me today. It was really great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is a really in- interesting conversation. Wonderful. And I will talk for the next one. All right. All
1: right. Take care.